Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And before we get into today's episode, I have a peer review. Oh, okay. Shoot. So last week, we mentioned that Marco Rothspiegelman from Paper Towns has a dog, Myrna Mount Weasel. We said that Myrna Mount Weasel plays a large role in the plot of the first part, and then we never mentioned her again. (laughs) So it is my solemn duty to inform people what role she does play. The reason that Margot goes to Q's window and asks to borrow his car is because her parents keep their car keys under their bed because they have met Margot in their lifetime. And Myrna Mount Weasel, the barking dog, guards the bed. So if Margot goes to get the keys, the dog will wake up her parents. And that's why Q gets involved. And that's why Myrna Mount Weasel is important. Yep, that happened. We also forgot a bunch of other stuff from that episode, but it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. But we were reviewed. (laughs) We were reviewed and we got comments and now we have revised and here we are. That's why we have the system. It's for accountability. Yes. Which we need so much. So much. So also before we get into today's episode, but also kind of as an introduction to today's episode, I wanted to explain something about when you're taking an English degree. So if you haven't taken an English degree, part of the exam process, at least here in Canada, is you have site passages. And site passages are they give you a random passage from any of the books, plays, poems, texts you read during the year, and you have to be able to identify and explain that passage with the work name, the author, the plot, and the themes. And so it's lots of memorizing when you are reading like 50 plus works in a semester. Yeah, it's basically like the professor's way of fail-saving to see if you've actually read the stuff they assigned to you. Yeah, basically. Also how good you are at memorizing. So we had to do a lot of that and we started coming up with very specific and creative memory techniques where we assigned meaningfulness to like the connection between the author and the work title. For instance, Who's Who, the poem, is written by Auden. So who is what an owl says. So we named the owl outside our dorm Auden. So then when we got who's who on the test, we knew who it was. And like, to be fair, probably it wasn't even an owl. It was probably like a weird pigeon, but here we were. Those odd nighttime pigeons. Ah, we know birds. We know birds. So the reason that this week's text sprang to mind is because Amy came up with the best memory device for The Second Coming by Yates. Yeah. Would you like to explain what your memory device for that was, Amy? This was a monkey scrotum. Yeah. Can you expand? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't remember where I read this. It was probably like mental floss or like BuzzFeed or some other type of listicle stuff. But uh, WB Yates allegedly had some monkey scrotum tissue inserted into his scrotum to uh, make him feel more virile in his late age. Therefore, we associated the second coming with Yates because of his affliction with the monkey scrotum. However, I've recently learned more information about that. So I've, I've recently learned that this is not like a off-brand procedure. Like it was something that was actually being done. Except most people use goat instead of monkey. Huh. And Yates didn't actually get that procedure done. Instead of what he got done was a um, Steinact. It's a procedure named after like a doctor with the last name Steinact. Who essentially thought that if you kept all the sperm in the scrotum, you would be more virile and like you would be like younger and he would have more stamina and like you'd feel like a youth again. So what they did is that they like cut 
off parts of one of your vas deferens to keep the sperm in one of your testicles like within the testy so that it wouldn't like go out and then you could have more testosterone and feel more like a man so to speak so essentially he half vasectomized men and that's what yates actually got done so his second coming was just a half of a coming actually <laughs> So we learned things. Oh, that is fun. Yeah. I learned something about it too. Did you? I learned why he did it. Was it his many, many failed engagements and marriages? A little. Let me explain. Please expand. So according to his biographer, Brenda Maddox, he equated sexual drive with poetic power. Ah, yes, his muse. His muse is his other head. (laughs) He did have an interesting relationship with his sex life. Yeah. He was a virgin until he was 30. So then when he was old, he was like making up for lost time I guess that's a mood that's a whole mood yeah so like when he got older he was he was obsessed with like getting it on as much as he could but the problem with Yates is that he proposed to the same woman literally like six times literally literally like six times we'll get into it okay he actually wanted an heir which is why he was so eager to marry like at the point that he did marry eventually Mm. when he was around 51 so his actual wife was like his third choice like in the months leading up to his wedding first he asked a woman who he had had a relationship with before named Maud Gone. Yep. And that was like the fourth, fifth, sixth time he had asked her to marry him. And again, she said no. Can we talk about how much of an idiot you have to be to propose to someone seven times? I actually think Maud is so fun. Like, can you not get like a fucking clue? Like, she went and married someone else. And then once she got like divorced or he died or was widowed or whatever, like he tried again and it's like, buddy, she said no, let it go. Like no means no Yates. You know, he needs to get over it. Yeah, he uh, he doesn't exactly treat people very well. He's very much a narcissist. They were longtime friends and they had slept together, but apparently he was bad in bed because she then wrote him a letter that was like, I think poets that abstain from sex are more talented. Oh. Which is rough. Uh, then he asked Maude if he could ask her daughter to marry him. Her daughter who was like 26 at that point, I think, right? The thing I read said she was like practically a teenager. Okay. So she might have been even younger than that. Okay. Maude was like, sure, but she'll think you're an idiot for asking and she did think he was an idiot for asking and she also turned him down when you can't even get the apple that falls not far from the tree (laughs) yeah then he finally asked georgie his wife who he met because they were in the same secret occult society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, leave it to Yates to be in a secret society. Right. And then she found out on their honeymoon that he was still, quote, in love with Iso, Maud's daughter. But I don't believe he was. I believe he just asked Iso because Maud kept turning him down and he was like, well, this is a this is a backup prize. But she did find out he had a wandering eye. So Georgie, being my new favorite person in literary marriage history, Georgie started pretending to channel spirits to keep him interested because in the Order of the Golden Dawn, the society they were in, it was very into like magic. And she was like, oh, if I am a medium, maybe he will like me. So she used the spirits to communicate to him like stuff she wanted. She would sit at a table and like close her eyes and write stuff. And she's like, oh, the spirits are speaking to me. I must write what they're saying, you know? Oof, 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 oof. And he was so ready to believe that the spirits were communing with him through her because he thought he was special. 
And then eventually she started using the phantom writings to like make him do stuff. So she had the fake ghosts tell Yates that he needed to take better care of her sexual needs. Love it. Get what you need, woman. This was at a point when he was already experiencing impotency. She was like 25. He was like 51. Right. So she was like... This is where you should do it. This is how often you should do it. Once a week is fine if you're tired, but no less than that. Wow. I know. After she had their second child, the writings stopped because presumably she was busy like being a mom. Rearing children. Yes. Yeah. And then he did lose interest like she thought he would. And he started cheating on her. His affairs were the things that made him tired. And that's when he got the surgery in 1934. Love it. Yeah. Love it. According to Georgie, the surgery did not work, but it did make him feel better. Well, you know, there's something to be said about placebos, I guess. I guess. But if he was still experiencing impotency, then, uh, or impotency, I'm not sure how you pronounce that word. Neither do I, I'm ESL. I guess the placebo didn't work that much. One of his friends said it was like putting a Cadillac engine in a Ford car. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Also, Georgie almost died of the um, influenza in 1918. Did she? Yeah. It was especially bad for women who were pregnant because, you know, immune systems and the flu. Yeah. And yeah, she uh, she almost died, but she didn't, which is good. Also, she sometimes went by the name George, which I think is rad. Yeah, that is rad. It's sad that she almost died of the flu. I'm glad she made it. She seemed like a fun gal. Yeah, that also brings us back to like the poem we're doing today because it was written during this period of when she was sick. Oh, was it? Interesting. Yes. So The Second Coming is a poem that is only two stanzas. So I think we can just read the whole thing. For sure. So this is it. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming! Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless in the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? Question mark? Yeah, that's that's the entire thing. That's the entire second coming. Yeah. Thoughts? <laughs> so let's put it into context. Um, it was written at the end of the First World War. So that has an effect on it because, you know, we had just gotten past this very tumultuous time in uh, world history. It was also at the same time that there was this like big revolution in Ireland and Yates is Irish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Irish War of Independence was happening, um, had just followed the Easter Rising. And yeah, originally, fun fact, it was supposed to be the second coming was supposed to be the second birth instead. Oh, so it, it didn't have as much of the. Uh, what do you call it? Like biblical allegory? Religious overtone? Yeah. 
Yeah. So that wasn't as present in the first drafts, but then he he changed it. Interesting. So Yates wasn't into really taking a stance on the war, but a lot of people were disillusioned around that time, like the 20s. Yeah. Because everyone was partying and everyone seemed to be forgetting about the horrible, terrible violence that had just happened. Yeah, kind of like, you know, right now when people forget that we're still technically in a pandemic. That might be too controversial to put on the line. Yeah, right? Like it's... It's not the Roaring Twenties yet. Yeah, no. He did get kind of involved in writing about the war, but only in as much as that he basically wrote a poem that was like, no comment, you know? Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, but he was asked to write like not a propaganda poem about the war, but like a political poem against the war. And he wrote on being asked for a war poem that was basically like, I don't think poets should be getting involved in this because I think other people know more about the issues than we do. Oh, yeah. No, poets should not be involved in things, you know. Not like Owens wasn't actually killed in the war or anything. Yeah, not like arts have commented on politics and society for as long as the arts have existed. Not like that. Not like that. So he was like, no comment. I don't think statesmen are going to listen to me. So he just wrote the poem on being asked for a war poem instead of actually writing a war poem. But uh, I do think he was disillusioned with the wars that were all happening. Mm. So it's like a very bleak outlook on the future of humanity. It's really short too. It is very short. Sorry, I was was back to the second coming. Oh, also very short. But yes, I agree. Like it, it paints a very bleak picture of the post-war world. Like it's, it's not, you know, positive in any way, shape or form. No, like the second coming first stanza is about this dystopian end of civilization. The falcon turning and turning away from the falconer and the center cannot hold is uh, basically there's two interpretations where humanity is getting farther and farther away from nature and that's when things fall apart or that the cycles of the falcon flying away is like the eras of humanity and each era that passes we get farther from where we're supposed to be and the center cannot hold because the center doesn't really exist like the falcon is not attached to the falconer in any way the only reason the falcon comes back to the falconer is because it's trained and can hear it but it's like there's nothing actually holding us to civilization because civilization isn't real yeah well gyres are like a spinning vortex type thing right like they're they're not a concrete object but they're they're the movement that goes in a circle and if it's widening then it makes sense like the outer edge of it can't get back to where you started kind of thing yeah it's true the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity just hit me way too hard yeah yeah that's uh that's hitting a bit different isn't it um because it is it is really hard to do like any type of work to make the world better when you see that all the people who have all the money and who are like really terrible people like have all this passion to make the world more terrible yes because like there's only so much like one person can do and if you keep being like knocked down by people who have like more power than you but less like ethics kind of gets a little tiresome and a little rough to be around yeah both movements are growing like the movement to make things better and the movement to make things much worse. Yeah. But the movement to make things much worse are kind of more backed by the people in power. Yeah. It's not a prediction 
per se, but it kind of is a prediction. I mean, maybe Georgie wasn't wrong. Maybe she was actually speaking to some spirits. We don't know. Maybe she was. Maybe she could see the future also. Maybe she could see the future. Maybe this was her mumblings while she had the flu. She was mumbling about the future. Yeah, the future in which Jeff Bezos owns theirs. Oh no. Ugh. So the second coming that they're predicting in the poem, where they're like, surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming of Christ in Christian tradition. It's also in Muslim tradition, but Yeats was a Protestant. Protestant, So in Christian tradition, which Yeats was a part of, it means many things, but generally it was originally supposed to lead to like resurrections of the dead and then a hope for a new future on earth. And then it transformed over time into like Christ would come back to earth and invite the true believers up to heaven and then the non-believers would just stay on the earth as it got worse and worse and then just got destroyed. Yeah. But actually, in this, it's this horrible, blank-faced, slouching monster who we're supposed to interpret as the Antichrist. So in this, Christ is not coming back. Humanity has basically been sowing seeds of destruction for the past 2,000 years. And it has doomed itself and there is no hope. Yeah, I think it's also very like important to note like the amount of death and carnage that had happened in the war and in the influenza pandemic. You know when he says when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi, that's like the world's spirits. It's the uh, collective unconscious basically. Yeah, so like imagine the amount of like death and very troubling things that have just happened and how if like the spirits and the dead come back and all that kind of stuff how many there are and how pissed off they probably are yeah it's true you know you're right like it's not supposed to be anything other than absolutely terrifying yeah and the beast itself is like I know it just, it sounds bad on its own and it's a rough beast slouching toward Bethlehem to be born. Like that's not good on its own. No. But it's modeled after the manticore, which is a Persian mythological creature with the head of a human, the body of a lion, and it usually has the tail of like a porcupine or a snake. Right. Or a scorpion. Right. And the manticore devours its prey whole and it's got three rows of teeth and it leaves no trace of its victims. That's a very expensive strip to the dentist when you have cavity. <laughs> uh, it has to pay lots and lots for braces. That's why it's so angry. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I have to pay all this money for dental care. I had to pay out the stinger for these braces. I didn't ask to be born with three sets of teeth. Uh, yeah, but it's not a it's not a fun time, you know? No, it's not a fun time. There's a lot of like bird metaphors, imageries, that kind of stuff. It's always relating to the war, which is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. The indignant desert birds. Mm-hmm. Because typically in biblical stories about Christ walking through the desert, the Christ walking through the desert thing is when he was in the desert fasting for 40 days. Yeah, Lent. Yes. And the desert birds, I don't know if this is actually in the Bible, but it's in a Christian punk song that I like. Hmm? The uh, The desert birds were circling and like kind of like licking their lips like, ooh, any second now. Yeah, because they're vultures. Yeah. So these ones are like, he's not going to drop. He's going to outlive all of us you know one of us one of us kill for (laughs) us kill for us yeah oh yikes no yates (laughs) so interestingly the manticore is not the first time he wrote about a mythological creature hmm shall we progress into that train of thought now i think we shall if we're done with this one (laughs) yeah yeah let's go cool 
So I did mention that Yates was in a secret occult society. Yes, spooky. And I think we should explore that just a smidgen more because the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is the source of a lot of modern conceptions of magic. Okay. Like a lot of the magic that comes from Wicca, for instance, is inspired by the Order of the Golden Dawn. Okay. So it's like a very fun little society. It considered men and women equal and everyone was allowed to join it on equal terms. Unlike the pre-Raphaelites. Unlike the pre-Raphaelites. Well, I shouldn't say everyone because a lot of things that refer to men and women at this time refer to white men and women were welcome. So I don't know about that, but it did have one thing going for it. And it was one of the biggest influences on Western occultism in the 20th century. So that's fun. Uh, But Yeats was kind of interested in magic his whole life because he was born in Ireland before moving to England. And his mother in England would tell him stories from Irish mythology. And one of those stories is the story of changelings. Mm, Yes. Yes, which is a fairy child who has been left in place of a stolen human child. So the fairy child would cause mischief for the human parents and behave like not a child would. And this was probably stemmed out of like ableism because it was probably actually children who had undiagnosed mental illnesses or learning disabilities, but they could only be explained using the frame of reference people had at the time, which was magic fairy meddling. Yeah. And the flip side of that story is that the human child who was originally there was presumably taken to the fairy realm. Mm-hmm. And Yates wrote a really cool poem about that stolen human child called The Stolen Child. He's very good at, you know, naming things. Yeah, he's really good at titles on being asked for a war poem is a poem on being asked for a war poem yeah the stolen child's about a stolen child it works he's straightforward he knows what he likes yeah so i'm just gonna read the first stanza of this one because it's a little longer okay but i just think it's fun okay where dips the rocky highland of sleuthwood in the lake there lies a leafy island where flapping herons wake the drowsy water rats there we've hid our fairy vats full of berries and of reddest stolen cherries. Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And I just like it. It feels very chilling, and it's a little haunted. It's a little haunted, yeah. And if you would like to read the full poem, it's available on poets.org. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm, like, scanning it now, and it, it's going to be good. It has a lot of, like flora and fauna imagery which is fun and that's on par with the fairy stuff i think you know yeah it feels hopeful but i don't know if it was meant to feel hopeful because it's like oh you get to go into this beautiful pastoral fairy realm and there's like moonlight glosses and dim gray sands with light and olden dances but i think people actually thought that once a human child was taken to the fairy realm like it wasn't good like something bad would happen Mm. um so maybe it's like threatening Hmm. but it's kind of like goblin market vibes meets like pastoral fairy tale vibes yeah it feels like you know whenever like you you meet a troll in like video games or whatever yes it has that kind of like feeling to it i think do you know what i mean how so like everything seems fine past the troll bridge but like the troll bridge giving you a bunch of riddles and if you don't figure them out then he's gonna eat you it's kind of <laughs> like life's a riddle and you know be careful or else we're gonna give you our fruit and you can never go back home oh like the goblin market yes 
Yes, exactly like that. Which is a Christina Rossetti poem, um, which we're eventually going to cover. This is influenced by pre-Raphaelite verse, so. Does it say that? On the Wikipedia, it does. <gasps> Yay! The poem reflects the early influence of romantic literature in pre-Raphaelite verse. Oh, that's probably why I like it so much. Yeah. It's a little pre-Raphaelite, and it's very full of magic and legends, and very, very cool. Yeah, which is nice. I li- like, I've always liked fairies. Like, my favorite part of the Shadowhunter books is always the fairies. Oh, yes, they're very good. They feature prominently in the sequel series. And I always love our time in fairy a lot more than our time anywhere else, I think. So this is on brand. In myth, I think if you go to the fairy realm, like it is a nice place, but it's kind of like you're a prisoner because if you eat anything, then you can never leave. Yeah. But it's like if it's a nice place, um, the world is more full of weeping than you can understand. So why would you want to go back? Yeah. And time passes differently too, usually in fairy. So like time is relative and uh, maybe you don't need to live on human time. We're on island time. I'm on, I'm on tomorrow time fairies are always on vacation fairies don't believe in capitalism that's what matters yeah i really i enjoy this i enjoy the as you said like the subtle undertone of like potential danger but i think that's what makes it fun i agree i am always for like a little bit of danger but not too much not like the road trip in paper towns much no just like that time you took me down to the forest when we had just met yeah just like that a reference to an experience all our listeners can understand and relate to that's actually all i had Wow, that's uh, short. We blew through it. Cool. Fun. Fun. A short summer episode. A short summer episode. Next time, we'll come back at you with probably a book. I'm aiming for the wars, I think. Oh, that would be a good transition. Oh, you know what would be a good transition? Things fall apart. Things fall apart. (laughs) Because we didn't talk about that. Things fall apart is a book about right before colonial Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Things fall apart is an interesting segue to our post-colonial books. So yeah, thanks for listening. That's all we have for you today. If you like this episode, please give us a follow wherever you listen. The way you can help us the most right now is sharing your favorite episode of this podcast on social media. You can also give us a rating of five stars on iTunes or Podchaser if that's how you feel about us. We would appreciate that. You can follow us at Unsighted Pod on Twitter or Instagram or just send us a message. We love to hear from you. Yeah, we like people. You can email us at unsightedpodcast at outlook.com or wherever. Yeah, you can send me like mail. I don't, I'm not giving you my mailing address, but if you figure it out, send me mail. But don't though. But don't, don't send me mail. But don't though, because we'll be a little scared. <laughs> don't force me to move. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited and available. We do not stan Yeats either. No. But his poems are very fun. <laughs>